Right, so uh, 1977, I'm seven years old, and uh, the Spider-Man made-for-TV movie came out, and I'm seven years old, so I don't have, like, the most discriminating of tastes, but watching about five minutes of this, I knew it sucked, okay? I'm seven years old, and I'm, I'm watching this guy. First of all, Peter Parker's, like, 38 years old, okay? And he's got a little bit of a bear belly, you know, I'm not judging or anything, but, you know, it, when you put it on the, the tights, it's just not, leaves not much of the imagination, right? Uh, they would strap some, like, glacier glasses on him. Remember glacier glasses? Yeah, so they put some of that on him. And um, the best was, you know, I know that 1977, not a, lot, a whole lot of special effects, but what they did is they, they painted a floor to look like a skyscraper. And then 38-year-old Spider-Man would kind of do core exercises on that, and then they would turn the camera so it looked like he was crawling on a side of the building. And, I mean, really, his webs look like bad, like rope from a Western. I mean, we're just talking, like, total cheese. But... If you go back another three years, I'm four years old, and I didn't have the most discriminating of taste when I was four years old, and uh, this is my very first experience with live-action Spider-Man. No one can stop the wall. No one? Well, if it isn't the wall-crawling creep, here's one wall you'll never crawl, you red and blue buffoon. He's so He's trying to eat a hot dog with no mouth. That does it. Now listen here, you. The rule book clearly states, clearly states that no spectators or walls are allowed on the field of play. So I'm throwing you out of the ballpark and take that ball with you. That's all the thanks you get, Spider-Man. Spider-Man, where are you coming from, Spider-Man? Nobody knows who you are. Some of you under 30 are just like, what was that? You know, this is like over 40 years ago, and I still, I still this day have vivid memories of watching... Sesame Street, but then after that, the, the real show came on, The Electric Company, and once in a while, Spider-Man would come on and not only throw webs over bad guys like the wall, but he would teach you about grammar, so learning was fun, and I, I used to just love this Spider-Man. By the way, did anyone recognize who the, uh, the usher was? It was more, someone in the first service bl blurted out, Samuel Jackson, you know, and they were so proud, like, no, it's Morgan Freeman, the voice of God. Um, <laughs> So Spider-Man has gone through a ton of different variations, uh, but one thing that they all have in common is that how Peter Parker became Spider-Man. So if I get this right, and if you're a comic nerd, don't be mad at me, but apparently Peter Parker is a teenage journalist, a photojournalist, and he goes to this, this lab, and we're going to show some, a video here. If you have arachnophobia, just, just don't watch this, okay? Because um, it's kind of gross and disgusting. But oh, so Peter Parker goes to this, this super lab, and they are... Uh, dousing spiders with radiation, and somehow the radiation doesn't kill the spiders, but it turns them into these super spiders. Well, of course, one of them gets loose, bites Peter Parker on the hand, and somehow his DNA coding is changed. So you got geeky, awkward, wimpy Peter Parker, who's bitten by the radioactive spider, DNA code change, and now all of a sudden, He's like super Peter Parker. He's super Spider-Man. And he has spider strength. He can jump high. He has a spider sense. I don't know if spiders have this sense or not, but they have like, you know, precognition. 
comics. You can do anything you want, okay? Inhuman speed, inhuman agility. He is changed into a brand new species, a brand new person. He's sort of metamorphosized into this new creature. And so that's what we're going to spend our, the rest of our time talking about today is that when we place our faith in Christ, he completely transforms us. He uh, goes through a, as Neil read a couple minutes ago, is that we go through a whole new creation process and we're changed forever. Now, I believe that if we get a handle on what that means to be a new creation, if we get a handle on what our identity as believers in, it can make all the difference in the world and it can really infuse um, the joy in our Christian experience. You know, I think a lot of times we're, we're such ineffective people in evangelizing because we're so miserable ourselves. We probably wouldn't say that out loud, but why would I ever want to tell someone about Christ if, you know, hey, come to Jesus so you can be miserable like me, you know? But a lot of us live those kind of like dark lives. Now, if you understand what your identity is in the Lord, I think it will make all the difference in the world. Uh, so today we're just going to look about five aspects of our identity, and there are just lots more. And if you're... Um, a person who likes the Facebook and gets on our Facebook page tomorrow, I'll post a PDF of about 11 pages of, of more identity, but I'm going to focus on just five of them today. So the first one is this, and by the way, if you're, uh, um, if you have a bulletin or a program that you came in, I would just really encourage you to take some notes, uh, write down what these five identities are, and uh, I want to encourage you to write down some of these scriptures and you can look them up um, on your own when you get home. Uh, first one is a new creation in Christ. I am God's child. As a new creation in Christ, I am God's child. John 1, 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, have you received him? If so, you have a right, um, a right to become a child of God. And I think this is probably the most important one and maybe the most vivid example for us as humans to understand uh, that God has given you life, and he has sort of engrafted you. He's made you a part of his family. Um, I love how Peter Parker, if, in the lore of Peter Parker, that he was um, somehow his parents died when he was young, and so he was adopted into uh, the family of his aunt and his uncle. And there's other passages in Scripture where we're talked about as being chosen, and we've, we've been adopted into Jesus' uh, family. And I just think it's really cool how God has given us life. He has born us. He has adopted us. And there's another part in scripture where it says that we can call out to him, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, you might think of like the 70s uh, amazing band. But really, uh, Abba is an Aramaic word for the most intimate word that you can have between a child and, and a parent. And, and Jesus says, this is how we approach God. We have this, this intimate, close, personal relationship with him that cannot be broken. You know, if you're a parent, you understand that you, you love and value your kid more than anything. Um, you know, that you would do anything for them. Uh, you wouldn't think twice about giving your life for them if you had to. Um, and I, I was thinking, why, why is that? You know, why, why do we have this inherent love for our kids? Is it because they're, they're so just darn lovable and unselfish? You know, they do nothing but sacrifice for their parents, and they give all the time. They never get into trouble. They never cause harm to themselves or anybody else. You know, I, I've got three kids who are becoming older kids, but they're still, you know, my kids and they always will be. Uh, you know, but if you boil it down, um, kids are a bunch of entitled brats. They really are. <laughs> Let's face it, you know. And a lot of times we act the same way, but, you know, my, my kids, no matter what they do, no matter how they behave, they will never be my, my unchild. You know, I know there's examples of that in, in our world where people disown 
people that are their family, but, uh, but God will never do that. God will never disown his, his child. Once you are a child of God, you're, you're in the family, and you're there forever, and God will never disown you. And, you know, once you're his precious child, child he loves you with a love that uh, we, we, we can't even begin to dare imagine how close and real that is. Now let's go on to another one. As a new creation in Christ, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Uh, and I didn't say I, I can be forgiven or might get forgiveness if maybe I, you know, beg God enough or get him to do something or if I clean up my behavior that maybe God will forgive me. It's like we are forgiven people. I'm going to give you five uh, scriptures and there are just dozens more that talk about this, this relationship that we have with Christ and the finality of the cross and the forgiveness is something that we possess as an inherited part of God's family. But here's just five. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. You know, this is a callback to what Neil read in the passage earlier. Um, this might be the best news you've ever heard in church. I don't know if you're kind of new to the, the whole church thing, but maybe you've avoided church for such a long time because you had this idea that, uh, church is just going to, you know, make you change your life. You're going to come in, there's going to be a bunch of people screaming at you and saying that you need to clean up and be like sort of a morality police or, you know, here's a bunch of like rules you need to follow. And again, sounds like, sounds like a hoop. But that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not counting your sins against you. I mean, this is the best news ever, that he was in Christ reconciling the world. That's, that's all of us. He was reconciling us to himself, not counting our sins against you, not counting our sins against him. I mean, truly, truly amazing. That word reconcile is interesting. Do we have any accountants here? Any accountants? Raise them high. Come on, be proud. You're an accountant. Okay, you're all really, really cool. No accountants here. I bet most of you do accounting every day. I, I do. I'm not an accountant, but I pull up my online statement from my bank every day. And then I pull up my Quicken 2016 on my Mac, and I have them side by side. And what I do is I reconcile the accounts, okay? So a lot of you know what this is to do. Remember you had to wait a month back in the day? Now you can do this every day. And so you look at your bank statement, and you say, hey, there's a deposit on there. This is amazing. I forgot to write that deposit down. I thought I was, you know, 20 bucks in the hole, but I made a deposit on my bank statement, and so I go and I put that in there, and then they reconcile together. And this is an accounting term that Jesus, that God uses to say that uh, he has reconciled you. In other words, that God has almost given you a statement that says, I have wiped off the, the sin that separates me and humanity. I have wiped it off. I have taken it away through Jesus Christ. And Paul says later on in this chapter, he says, I, I implore you, I beg you. He says, be reconciled to God. How can that be? You know, be reconciled to God when he says he's already reconciled us. It's a two-way street, right? If God has taken the sin off of his books, we need to do the same. So take it off your books. Uh, here's another passage in Colossians 1, 21 to 22. says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you. There's that word again. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you blameless in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. I love that first part of that, of that verse, that once you were alienated from God, it was saying one time when you were born in this world, you were alienated from God. But that second part says you were enemies of God, right? 
It says you were enemies, what? In your minds. It's almost to say that, you know, have you ever thought you were an enemy of God? You ever thought that God was peeved at you? That God was annoyed with you? That you were a big failure? That you were a big disappointment to God? A lot of times we think that, but Paul says that that's probably just in your mind. You were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind. But then he says this but, this, 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 this contrast of that. But now he has, and this is a past tense, he has reconciled you through Christ's physical body. And he says there's three things that happened because of that. One is that you are blameless in God's sight. Pretty good news, huh? I'm going to feel that way, but Scripture says I'm blameless in his sight. That I'm without blemish? I don't feel that way, but I'm going to go with that. And free from accusation. You know, uh, Jesus said there was, a, there was an accuser. There's one who accuses, and it's not, it's not Jesus, and it's not God. Do you know who that is? Yeah, it's the enemy of our soul who accuses us. But we are free from accusation because of what Christ has done for us. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. That little phrase in there, he forgave us all our sins. I'm going to blow you away here, okay? This word all is a Greek word, and you know what it means? It means all. It means all. When I'm talking about all, I'm talking about all sins. That's a lot of them. Think about just your own sins. It's enough to probably make you sick, right? All sins, all people, for all time. I mean, does the mind comprehend that? All sins, all people, for all time. I mean, that's, that's a lot. And Christ took it, took it away. He took away that, that law that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. 1 John 2, verse 12 says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of your good behavior. Did I write that? Did I read that right? So hold on a second. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of your good confession. You know, you went to a priest and you got, you got, uh, you know, your sins confessed and you were forgiven. Um, maybe, you know, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven, because you, First John 1, 9, back and forth to God all day long and, and hope that you're in good standing with him. What does it say? It says you have been forgiven on account of his name. Have been forgiven. This is a past act with all-encompassing, completed action forward by what Christ did for us, you know, a couple thousand years ago. Uh, lastly, First John 2, 1 to 2 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. There's that word in there, it's kind of sneaky, but um, propitiation, that's kind of a funny word. It's not something that we use that often, but what it really means is that, that God is appeased that God is satisfied by what Jesus Christ did on the cross for the world, for all of humanity, from Adam to the last person, whenever that is, that God was propitiated, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Um, I, I used a different um, translation. I love the NIV. It's kind of the Bible I'm most familiar with or the translation that I'm most familiar with, but uh, they really botched 
this verse. They, uh, they wrote in atonement in there. And if you look at the Greek, that word is, is not there. And, you know, I give them grace for doing that. It was probably just, you know, a, a word that we sometimes think about that, the atoning work of Christ. But that's not to be found in the New, Test- in the New Testament anywhere. A better word is propitiation because atonement was a system that God had for us to be forgiven backward. You would go on this day of atonement back in Israel times and you would slay a bull or a goat and somehow God instituted a system where that blood would forgive us for all of our past sins for that year, which was really good news. But then you're going home and you might stop by the, you know, the Israelite bar and, you know, and you got to wait a whole another year to get that sin forgiven. You got to kill another bull or another goat. Well, Jesus Christ didn't come to atone for sins. He didn't come to cover sins. He came to take them away. And there is a huge world of difference in those two things. Actually, the NIV does something pretty cool. It actually has a footnote. Uh, it says, um, he is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, let's go on to another part of our identity. As a new creation in Christ, I am redeemed. I am redeemed. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is, again, more good news. If you are in Christ, you are redeemed. What does that word mean? It means that we are, we are saved, that we will have eternal life, that we inherit that as part of our being heir in God's family. You know, and as a believer, we have two things according to this verse. We have redemption and we have forgiveness. It's, it's things that we possess by being a child of God. Uh, and Paul writes this again, almost the exact same phrasing in Ephesians 1.7. It says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So take heart is that you are, you are saved. And, and if you've been a, you know, a Christ follower for a long time, I think maybe you know that you're saved. Maybe you don't, but maybe you do. But I don't think anyone asks God, you know, God, will you save me uh, every day? Like, why would we tell him? Like, well, because of course we possess that. I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm going to be with him forever. But a lot of times we, we have this, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm forgiven or not. Uh, you know, maybe I could, again, First John 1, 9, back and forth and, and see if God can do something to get him to like me more, be less disappointed with me. But, you know, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. And you can't separate those two from one another They are all part of the the mix of what it means to be God's child. Uh, Number four, as a new creation in Christ, I am perfect forever. You just say that? Did I write that? I am perfect forever? That sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Sounds blasphemous. Hebrews 10.14 says, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Any perfectionists in the crowd? Yeah, probably. You know, if you're a perfectionist, I got really good news. God's already made you that way. You don't have to strive to be perfect. Well, what does that mean? And there's another word for that. It could be complete. That God has made you complete in Christ. But think about this. Uh, you know, one of our um, rules of velocity is that there are no perfect people allowed. But I was thinking about this week. I was like, maybe we should change that. You know, because in the sight of God, if you are in Christ, you are perfect forever. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with your thought life. It has nothing to do with your past. It has nothing to do with your, your present sins or the sins that you'll commit in the future. Is that you are perfect forever. And that just sounds too good to be true. But when Jesus uh, imputes his righteousness to you, God looks at you 
with the perfection of Jesus Christ. He sees the perfect son who lives inside of us, and he sees perfection. Um, I think a really great analogy that we see in nature constantly is a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Now, if you think about it, a caterpillar is a worm, right? Glorious worm, but it's, you know, it's hairy and slimy and gross, and you can do whatever you want to this worm. You can, you know, dress this worm in Armani. It's still going to be a worm, right? You can give this worm a, a doctorate and send them off to all these, you know, get degrees from worm universities, but this worm is a worm. There's no, no hope for this worm. But then this worm decides to go through this metamorphosis process, right? And this worm uh, spins a cocoon, and I think it's chrysalis, is that right? I'm trying to remember my ninth grade biology. And about a month later, this worm comes out, but it's not a worm anymore. It's, it's a butterfly. And now all of a sudden, this butterfly can do all sorts of things that the worm couldn't do. It can, it can fly, and it looks beautiful. And I would never look at a butterfly and say, man, that is, that's a really beautiful converted worm. You know, and you wouldn't either. You know, a lot of times we say as Christians, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, not according to the Bible, you're not. You know, that is what you were. You might have been a sinner, but God has redeemed you. He has changed you. He's made you a new creation. And now he calls you things like saints. You know, he calls you perfect forever. He calls you redeemed. He calls you his child. And you are different than you ever were. And it has nothing to do, again, with your behavior or how you act or how you think or any of that. Um, at the beginning of spring this year, I was hiking around the, the James River on the rocks. And I, I smell this just, I can't even describe it. It was some foul smell, okay? And so I checked myself, and no, it's not me. And um, I saw this, this rock down by the James River, and it had this steaming pile of mucoid material. I don't even know what it was. I mean, but it was just gross, and it smelled horrible. But then I saw this thing right in the middle of it, this, this butterfly. I've got a video of it. Oh, if you're seeing it right now. And I was able to take my phone and get really, really close to this thing, and I was thinking I'm going to spook this butterfly. It's going to fly away, but... That butterfly just stayed there, just enjoying the slop, enjoying his breakfast of mucus and disgustingness. And, you know, I thought, man, that is so like us, isn't it? That we are made into new creations. We're made into butterflies, and God wants us to, to fly. He wants us to know that we are like a butterfly, that we are a child of God, and, and we need to act like that, you know? And that's part of working out our faith with fear and trembling. It's, it's part of... Um, extending and um, deepening our, our walk with God and our, our faith journey with him. But again, I would never look at that beautiful thing and say, you know, what a beautiful converted worm that is. It's like, it's a new creation. And even though it likes to sometimes get so focused on things that are earthbound, it will never be a worm again. It will always be a new creation. And that's something that we can celebrate, I think. You know, as new creations in Christ, um, you know, we, li we live in this, this new covenant that we're not referred to as sinners, that we're not referred to as, as disappointments or failures. And, um, you know, we, we are God's children. We're forgiven. We have forgiveness. Uh, he's redeemed us, and, and we're perfect in his eyes. And, you know, the key phrase in all of that, it's right at the top, is a new creation in Christ. In Christ, in Christ is so important because 
Now, let me ask you the question. Do you know if you're in Christ or not? Have you ever come to Christ and he lives inside of you and you inside of him? And if you can't answer that with 100% complete assurance, uh, I've got really good news. I'm just full of good news today. But you're in a place where this is our mission statement at Velocity is that we exist to, to help people find Jesus, to find Jesus, to be, you know, helping people find Jesus and love God. This is part of our mission is why we exist, to help people in their journey with God and to, to nail that, that down. And if that's you, you know, maybe you've been kind of reading other people's mail today and you say, you know, I don't know if I'm in Christ. I don't know if I'm God's child. I don't know if I have that forgiveness in, in life. And I don't know if I've been redeemed. Um, please talk to us about that. Uh, we have some really cool ways you can do that. You can pull out your Connect card and on the back there's a box you can check. And it says, I want to learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you put that in the bucket, someone will... Uh, contact you this week. Uh, there's a box you can check on the back that says, I want to become, uh, I want to learn more about what it means to be a baptized follower of Jesus. And uh, guess what? You are in luck because next Sunday in this room, we're going to have a baptism service. And what, this is the best picture of what we've been talking about is that you'll have someone who uh, comes into the, this water um, representing someone who is dead, who is not spiritually alive and they are submerged under this water and they are brought back up to symbolize that this is a new creation in Christ and that they will never be the same again. So if you've never taken that step of faith, I just really wanna encourage you to do that. Um, if you are in Christ, again, what's the application to all this? I think it's because there's so many times that we go through our Christian experience where we, again, we kind of lose the joy of it. We look at our lives and they are so, um, there's a disconnect between how we live and what we know to be what God wants for our lives. And I think it's good for us just to, to go over these, these scriptures, to go over who our identity is and say, I might not feel like a child of God, but I'm going to go with what the Bible says and not my stupid feelings. I'm going to go that I am forgiven. I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel perfect, but I'm going to go by what the Bible says and, um, and renew um, that right relationship with God through what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, lastly, as a new creation in Christ, I am free. As a new creation in Christ, I am free. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things, but I think it means uh, free from any condemnation brought against me. That I am free from the sin that threatens to destroy my life. That I'm free from being separated from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't be separated from God's love. And I love how Paul writes this. He says, I'm convinced. I'm 100% sure. And I don't think it was because Paul looked at his behavior and says, I'm just, I'm a good Christian. I'm like Jesus Jr. here. You know, I am convinced that I can't be separated from the love of God only because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on my behalf. And we can say the same thing. Every week at Velocity, we, we take communion. And again, this is another symbol, another important and vital picture of what Christ came to do for us. On the night that he was betrayed, he, he took some wine, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And we read in the scripture that the, this covenant is 
where their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. And then he said, this is the bread. He took it and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Um, symbolizing that he would rise again from the dead and offer us his life, his eternal life to come inside of us, that we would live in him and he would live in us. So we have forgiveness in life because of what Jesus Christ has done for us through the cross and the resurrection. So as you take communion today, I want you just to be thinking about that. Maybe think about, read over that list of, of those five identities that we talked about. We're going to sing a song that uh, talks about this as well. Now let me pray for us. Now, God, without you, we, we don't have a prayer. We have, we have no hope. God, so often our, our behavior and our lives don't, don't match up to the high calling that you have for us. Uh, but I just thank you so much that our walk with you, our life with you is not dependent on um, how well we live this Christian life. Uh, it's only dependent upon you, what you've done for us and what you continue to do in and through us, God. So teach us how to be dependent on you, to, to realize the identity and the identities that you have given us uh, that we might live for you. Thank you again for your love, for your forgiveness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.